Less Doing, episode 91. Ari talks with David Epstein of The Sports Gene about experiencing different sports, curating talent, and debunking the 10,000-hour rule. This episode of the Less Doing Podcast is sponsored by Cognity. Cognity is an organic, energizing tea made with 100 milligrams of L-theanine that promotes mental clarity and focus so you can have a productive day. It helps you stay focused and alert without the jitters or crash. I teamed up with Cognity to get you 10% off and a free surprise for your first order. Just use the referral code LESSDOING during checkout. Now, I've been drinking Cognity most mornings. Uh, as I've said many times before, I drink Bulletproof coffee probably once every couple weeks. But uh, generally, I will have a Cognity every day. And I have to say that it's great. I think it's just it's, it's really easy to make. Obviously, you just put hot water with the bag and let it steep for a few minutes. And I do notice a really nice effect from it. So I definitely recommend people check out Cognity. And it's also something you can have later in the day, too, where you might not want to have the caffeinated beverages because of the L-theanine actually has kind of a calming effect. So check out Cognity. Yeah. And yeah, thank I, you for sponsoring I like us. I like having it in the afternoon sometimes actually when, um, <clears throat> exactly like when you're saying, when you don't want to have like the caffeine too much. It's really, really helps. Yes, absolutely. So um, this is our second time having an ad on the show. As you may notice, we're putting out the show twice weekly every week, and that takes a lot of work from me and even more work from Felix. So it's really nice to have their sponsorship, your support, and getting the message out there even more. And again, as I've said last time where we had our first ad, we're only going to have ads on the show that are from companies that I personally recommend on a regular basis or way before we got the ads there's not going to just be random things they're going to be things that we use we love and we want to share with everyone so again yeah. cognitive thank you for supporting the show absolutely and um and can you tell everyone about the the new upload schedule as well yes so uh we've also of course automated that we used <clears> to have to have felix staying up late into the night to Post things in SoundCloud. I'm kidding. Well, um, so basically, I'm really inefficient. Yeah. So uh, now the podcast will be released at 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. So everyone can expect there to be a fresh podcast in your podcast feed on Monday mornings for your commute and also on Thursday mornings. So every week on the dot, you will have those podcasts ready for you, and hopefully that that really helps. And who knows, maybe we'll be up to three podcasts someday. So uh, it's it's really going well. We really love where the podcast is going. It's been awesome having Felix as the co-host and as my audio engineer, and. We've gotten great feedback on Felix, too. I was at the Bulletproof conference uh, about two weeks ago, and apparently, well, we have, some, we have a lot of fans in Australia, apparently, but specifically Felix has some fans in Australia, so it's good to know. And well, you can, I'd like to give a shout-out to all of, those, all of those folks in Australia. <laughs> I feel like your accent got a little thicker when you said that, <laughs> just to differentiate. I think you're probably right. <laughs> um, so anyway, thanks, everyone, for the support, and uh, let's get to a review, speaking of support. Yeah. Sure. So this one is by the Unicorn Queen. Thank you, Ari. Ari's book, blog, and podcast have seriously changed my life. I'm obsessed in a healthy, not creepy way. I have implemented so many of Ari's tips, ideas, and suggestions, and my days are now more productive, more efficient, and most importantly, more fun. Thank you, Ari. Keep up the 
Awesomeness. Awesomeness. Okay. So thank you very much for that review. Okay. So let's get to the links. Uh, and again, you know what? You started off. You have a link this week. You started off. Just want to say, it's not every day you get a review from the Unicorn Queen. That is true. That is true. All praise the Unicorn Queen. Uh, okay, so here's my here's some of my links today. Okay, um, so I have been delving into. I mean, I'm crazy about key commands. Okay. Yeah. Um, I I hate using the mouse. I use the mouse as little as possible. And one of the things I've been, I'm, you know, I've been procrastinating about this for a while, but I finally found the key commands for for, for Pocket which is called get pocket i think now and evernote so if you're using if you've got the web clipper which is basically a browser plugin so let's say you're using chrome you can install a browser extension for evernote so you can clip articles directly to evernote without having to email them or and the same applies to pocket and i use those two two in conjunction with ifttt they um, and the key command for pocket is Command-Shift-P for the Mac, which is probably Control-Shift-P on Windows. And for Evernote, the command is... I'm not sure what it's called. It's like a little little dash. On the Mac keyboard, it's the, it's the key above the tab key to the left. So if you just press that and then enter, it will, it will save... Uh, it will clip it without having to scroll up using the mouse. Um, so that's, that's the... Uh, those are the first two links I've got. And the other one that I have is um, <clears throat> is one password. Now, Ari and I have, uh, you know, I've been trying to get Ari to use one password for a long time. I only use one password. <laughs> you use one password? No, I use one password. Oh. <laughs> See, that's your problem. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, I'm kidding for anybody who's trying to try to hack me now. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so I use one password, but it's not just about passwords, and this is where I think it's so great. Yeah. Is that it syncs with Dropbox. You use one password um, and it saves all of your passwords. It has an iOS app. It it's just absolutely awesome for managing all of your passwords. Software. Um for me, I buy a lot of software um for my music production, and I store all of those very long keys. Um text-based keys in one password um, anything secure social security numbers it's like my digital vault for everything and it's, it's on my dropbox it updates the whole time um, it's very secure um, i cannot recommend it enough but i think it's one of the number one productivity um, time savers that i use if i'm checking out on a website um, i have one password it just auto fills all of my um personal you know address data credit card numbers so actually checking out on a new website is very very fast awesome that's it awesome yeah no i i think it's great and, and you know I, I just don't use password managers because I, I only use a couple different passwords and the services that i i really want to protect that matter the most to me have two-step authentication on them so but i i do know that it is one of those things that's really valuable so <laughs> Uh, thanks for sharing that little of review, course. Felix. Um, all right, so there, the links for this week. Oh, actually, sorry, for the interview. So the interview this week is with David Epstein. And I've been meaning to get an interview with David for a while, and I just I kept like meaning to get in touch with him and then didn't. He wrote this, this great book called The Sports Gene, and it's basically about you know people thinking that they're innately good at certain things and not others and, and how you sort of train that. And he also debunks the 10,000-hour rule, which I was very happy about. Uh, for, you know what the 10,000-hour rule is, Felix? 
No, I was just about to ask. So this is Malcolm. Well, he talked about it more in the interview. But Malcolm Gladwell really made this popular, and it was basically like if you practice anything for ten thousand hours and you become an expert at it. Um, and so there was like examples of like Bill Gates or uh, I think Yo Yo Ma was another one. But it turns out that, and this is based on this study, and it turns out to be really just badly laid out. It doesn't it doesn't make any sense. And the thing is, it's actually caused some damage, they said, because people then think like, oh, I'm going to get my kid started on golf when he's three and just put in 10,000 hours and he's going to be a pro. Um, and it just really doesn't work like that. Uh, and actually, you'll appreciate this. The study that came up with this was based on 19 violinists at a very, very top-level conservatory in, in Austria, I think, or Germany. Um, and basically, there were like the, the lower third, the middle third, and the top third of only 19, which is also ridiculous. You can't do a study on 19 people. And basically what they found was that the ones who were in the top tier had done an average of 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. Now, that's also messed up because that's an average. So there were some that had done 6,000 hours or some that had done 13,000 hours, mm-hmm. which is a lot. And again, this is, this is violinists who are already at a top-level conservatory. So it's yeah, just, it's right. like, as a sample set, this makes no sense. So people have applied this to everything. If you do 10,000 hours of p- computer programming, you're going to be Bill Gates. If you do 10,000 hours of, you know, shooting basketballs, you're going to be LeBron James. Like, it just, it does not work that way. And unfortunately, it's been grossly taken out of context. So uh, he talks about that a lot, which is great. Yeah. Uh, okay, so this is a really funny one. There's an article, uh, basically, <laughs> it says, uh, using a vibrator to hallucinate. Yes. So uh, that can be interpreted in about 45 different ways. But basically, this is something really funny that you can try. Uh, and there's one, it's called the Pinocchio effect. And basically, what you do is you take two people, and one person closes their eyes and strokes their own nose with their own hand. Okay, yeah. And then they use their other hand to stroke the nose of the person standing in front of them. Okay. Yes. About 30 seconds of that synchronized nose stroking, and the stroker should feel like their nose is either three feet long or has floated away from their body. So you're actually creating this really funny kind of proprioception illusion. But now you can actually do something similar with a vibrator. So you can actually, or you know, anything that vibrates, basically. So you can touch your own nose, and then you want to vibrate, basically, against your bicep tendon. And what it's going to feel like is that you're lengthening your arm when you're really not. Now, is there an actual benefit to this? Probably not, but it's kind of an interesting thing to try in terms of realizing how you can really trick your anatomy and your brain sometimes into thinking things are happening that are not happening. So um, I thought that was worth sharing. Yeah. Uh, It's hilarious, and I I thought it was particularly funny how they said, "Uh, you know, you could try this with, uh, with, you could just try it with someone on the bus or something. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, hey, I got this vibrator. Can you just hold still for a second while I stroke your nose? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so another on-demand service that I love, I mean, you know, I love all these on-demand services. So there's a new one in New York called Petal by Petal. By the way, th- this, is, this is one of those phrases that requires an English person to say. It's Petal by Petal. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and this is what, you know, if anybody knows the classic example of ladder versus ladder, uh, as an American saying that, uh, it's not the same as Felix would say that, which would be... Latter versus ladder yeah so there you go it's a minor little thing but you know what it's very it's true it's it's something that i i have it's trouble for me so anyway pedal by pedal is basically you get flowers delivered uh on demand by bicycle by bicycle so they're fresh fresh flowers picked 
and uh, arranged and then delivered by bicycle, which I just, you know, it's just a nice thing. I think that it's a great thing. I, I've used other flower delivery services before when I was testing things out. And this is a new one in New York, which is a very cool one. So yeah. uh, there's a device that is now coming out on a Kickstarter campaign, and it's called the Orb Next. And it's a cube about the size of your hand that can glow in a variety of different colors. And of course... I wouldn't really recommend something like this if it didn't have an IFTTT channel. <laughs> yes. So it does. And, and it, this is one of those things that I love because you can really use your imagination. So you can have it glow red if you have a new email in your inbox. You can have it glow green if the market is going up. You can have it be blue if it's going to rain. You know, so you can sort of have this just very simple visual cue of things that might be happening or that are happening. Yeah, yeah it's very clever. And it can glow all different colors and... Um, yeah, I think the I, I'm not sure how how I'd use it if it um, if it weren't using the IFTTT um, rules. But uh, it has there is an app that goes along with yeah. it that can do some sort of basic stuff like like stock market weather and things like that. But uh, okay. you know, if you want to say like every time I get a tweet, then it fl- you know it glows a certain color or. <laughs> Um, every time I make a sale on PayPal, it goes green. You know, it's whatever it might be. Then that would yeah. be the IFTTT stuff. Right, right. So I just like it. It's it's one of those nice oh, indicators. Uh, do you know how much it is? Uh, it, uh, no, I don't. But we can okay. we can find out really quick while we go to the next link. I'll I'll see uh, I'll see how much it is. Yeah, because it's on a Kickstarter campaign too. So yeah, excuse me. Uh, okay, so then the the next thing is a just there was a cool article about this work space in Amsterdam. It's a design studio in Amsterdam. Did you see this one? Um, is this the, the, the workspace that the desk just... Yes, or, yes. Yeah. So basically this is talking about not letting people work too much and work-life balance. At 6 p.m. on the dot, the desks raise up into the ceiling and the floor clears and basically becomes like a lounge slash yoga studio slash hangout area. But basically, you're working on your computer, you're trying to work past 6 o'clock at night, burn the midnight oil, not quite the midnight oil, but working late, and the desks just retract, and you can no longer work, reach your workspace. So uh, maybe a little extreme, but probably it works. Does, it does seem cool, but I'm, I'm always curious about those sort of things. I mean, I, love, I, love, I absolutely love the ethos of that, but I mean, what happens when they have like a, you know, a huge project and they've got to deliver something for a client the next day. I mean, do they just... They don't? <laughs> I'm sure somebody goes over and they flip the switch that makes the desk go up and it comes right back down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Not that complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the last one... Oh, no, there's a couple of things, actually. So, one of the ones I want to mention now is there's a study about coffee naps. So, I actually... I oh, thought, yeah. I thought Claire were you like telling this. us about this. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, the idea is you take a nap. Uh, sorry, you t- you have a cup of coffee, take a nap, and then when you wake up, you're basically going to get the effects of the sleep and the caffeine. So the caffeine is going to sort of zap you out of your sleepiness, and yeah. also you're going to have cleared your adenosine receptors because that's really what caffeine does. By the way, people don't really realize that, and it's the reason that you get a caffeine uh, sort of addiction and dependence is that. What caffeine's doing is it's a, the same molecule shape, molecular shape as adenosine. And adenosine is a molecule that makes us tired. And in our brain, we have adenosine receptors. So basically, when you're getting tired, you get sort of this buildup of adenosine, and it's time to get sleepy. But caffeine blocks those receptors. So it's not necessarily that it's energizing you, but it's just preventing you from getting tired. Wow. And what your brain does, because your brain is very smart, is that over time it will actually create more and more adenosine receptors, which is why when you have somebody who's been on coffee for a long time and they switch to decaf, they have a very hard couple weeks usually because they have all, you know, they have 
four or five times as many receptors for this tiredness molecule, okay. and they they're just like zombies. So when you're sleeping, when you sleep, you're basically clearing out adenosine. So what this does is you're taking the nap, so you're clearing out that tiredness molecule, and then you're getting that caffeine boost. Wow. And uh, it's very powerful. So basically, try a caffeine nap the next time something's bothering you. If you have headaches or migraines, this is a really good kind of strategy, too, because caffeine is effective for migraines, as is sleep, if you can do it. So try... But you also have to be tired enough to go to sleep, like within five minutes or something, right? Um, it de- you know, it depends. Yes. I mean, it depends how quickly yeah. caffeine affects you. And also, I mean, some people can nap. It would be really good for people who, you know, just got a newborn and they're not getting any sleep and they're absolutely right. super power nap it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really cool. Well, and, and the thing is, is sometimes people who have trouble falling asleep at night actually can fall asleep for a nap a lot easier. Oh, uh, right. It's just, yeah. it's just one of those things, yeah. you know? So like I, for one, if you give me literally, I've done, I do this. I've done this. If you give me 12 minutes, I can get 10 minutes of sleep. Wow. Uh, so Okay, go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See you in a few minutes. <laughs> and we're back. <laughs> Had my cup of coffee. So, uh, sorry. Wow. Oh, okay. And then the, ver- really impressive. Yeah. the very last thing I want to mention is that uh, Change Collective is a company that I've done stuff before done stuff with before but basically they they try to do sort of habit changing and i think one of the ones that they started with was their flagship was getting up earlier so i did a two-week inbox zero course for them with them which is all a lot of my inbox zero content but they've paired it with an app and a whole bunch of sort of motivational stuff so every time you hit inbox zero i think you get a text message it's like you know way to go congratulations there's a group element to it but it's just an interesting different approach and it's a it's a two week program again, and you can sign up for it at Change Collective. All right, cool. So yeah, that's it for this week. And enjoy the interview with David Epstein. And if you're in the middle of your ten thousand hours of practice, maybe you can stop. <laughs> and uh, thanks for listening. And so now again, we're gonna have two episodes every week. We're gonna have ads from companies that we think are great, and we love all the support and the feedback. So thank you everyone for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone, and keep all that feedback coming. We love it. Now I'm speaking with David Epstein, who is the author of The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. So, David, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, right away, like, what, what got you started in the... Well, what, what got you wanting to write The Sports Gene? Uh, pretty much a, a couple questions that had lodged themselves in my head from my own sports experience. So I, I grew up outside of Chicago in an area with a, a large population of Jamaican immigrants, and we had these incredible track teams, uh, thanks to a lot of Jamaican sprinters. And when I was, you know, about 15 and flipped open the atlas and realized that Jamaica is an island of two and a half million people, I sort of started to wonder what the heck was going on over there. And in in college, I moved up to be a little bit of a long, longer distance runner. Now I'm running against some Kenyan athletes and meeting those guys and learning that they're actually all from one tiny town in the rural western Rift Valley. And I'm again wondering, like, what's happening in that little area? At the same time, I'm, I'm training with a group of five guys doing the same thing day in and day out, and we're getting more different, not more the same. And I just started to wonder how things like that could happen, you know, combined with things I saw as a sports spectator, like the ability of uh, female softball pitchers to strike out the greatest major league baseball hitters, it didn't make sense to me. So when I had a chance to start examining all my own questions, uh, I jumped at it. So, what? And, yours, and you were running which distance mostly? 
I was uh, in college. I was in, I was a national level eight hundred meter runner. Okay. Yeah, so I, I was a sprinter in high school, and uh, I mean, I was doing 100s and 200s, and mm-hmm. when I was in maybe 7th, you know, junior high and 6th and 7th grade, I was actually pretty good, and I was very competitive, but as I got into ninth and 10th grade, it just seemed like the, f- the the field got much, much better, and I wasn't keeping up with it. it, it it's just interesting at like a certain age where you start to see certain populations that are just so much better at certain, especially especially running. Yeah, I mean, the amazing thing is that it becomes even more exaggerated at, like, the absolute highest level of competition. So, right. like, in, in, for example, every man who's been in an Olympic 100-meter final since the boycotted Olympics of 1980, whether his homeland is the U.S., Canada, Jamaica, Nigeria, Portugal, Netherlands, every single one of them actually has their recent ancestry in a very small area on the coast of West Africa. Um, from no matter what country they actually grew up in, and that, that's actually pretty remarkable. And it's you know one of the things I take on in the book that I think is is kind of taboo for some people, but uh, people got really interested in. Well, I mean, you can't deny the data, right? And and uh, there there was uh, something that I read about. So, well, okay, so obviously there's nature versus nurture in, in general, but there was something, some study that I had seen that was saying that part of that was something having to do with pain tolerance, and you know, what I'm referring to with the, with the Messiah, I think it was. Yeah, that that's actually uh, a, a study of distance runners that right. looks at the Nandi tribe in Kenya, um, and they have this uh, they have a, a an adult circumcision ritual um, where where young men have to be circumcised without any anesthesia, and they they have to basically not flinch right. what's going on, or else they'll they'll sort of become you know kind of denigrated in society. And some people think that that's kind of led to them being very stoic, which is an advantage for distance running, but um, I don't put a ton of stock in that one because there are a ton of native populations that have really brutal initiation rituals. You know, if that were the qualification, then the Ache people of Brazil would be better runners Is than the, the Kalenjin of Kenya. They have, I don't think they have fire ants, but that's, uh, you know, like that just goes to show, right? There are a lot of famous yes. <laughs> uh, rituals like that. And, and the, the interesting thing about the Kalenjin, so the, those people in Kenya, that tribe we were just talking about is a subset of the Kalenjin people who are only 12% of the Kenyan population, but produce basically all of the great runners. So when we think of Kenyans as being great marathoners, Kenyans think of the Kalenjin people as being great marathoners. So to put their success in perspective, 17 American men in history have run faster than two hours and 10 minutes in the marathon, just four minutes and 58 seconds per mile pace. And 32 Kalenjin men did that last October alone. Uh, and they happen to have really good, a certain body build that leads to good running economy, which means they get more speed per oxygen that they use. And I, I dive into the physiology behind that in the book, and that has nothing to do with their this circumcision ritual that, that kind of anecdotally some people think might add to their stoicism. Sure. No, so that, um, and that's very interesting. So, but okay. So then, is that does that mean that there is a sports gene? Then there's really nothing. You know, there's certain things that you just if you don't have it, you can't do it. Yeah, I mean, for <laughs> one example, like yeah, yeah, there are. I mean, to, to one easy example. So, if anyone's ever seen, there are now some direct-to-consumer genetic tests, right? Um, and and some of them involve sports, and most of them are total like marketing BS. But one gene that they all test for is this gene called the ACTN3 gene. It codes for protein found only in fast-switch muscle fibers, the kind that you need for sprinting, jumping, that sort of thing. And if you don't have at least one of the sprint versions of that gene, basically, that produces that protein, you will not be in the Olympic 100-meter final, period. Like, you're ruled out. That said, the reason that these tests are 
basically useless is because that only rules out one billion of seven billion people on Earth. So it's incredibly nonspecific. You would do a better job with a stopwatch, you know. But you're looking at one puzzle piece. You need that piece to finish the puzzle, but by having only that piece and not the other 100 pieces, you don't really know what you have, but you still don't finish the puzzle without that piece. That's just one example of a gene like that. So how, I mean, how, okay, well, so forgetting running for a second, what about other things like power sports or, you know, the, the ones that use more of the slow switch muscle fibers? Yeah, not, well, actually, not the, that, the, I don't know that power lifting necessarily is slow twitch completely, obviously, but, uh, in, you know, in, in general. Sure, like endurance sports and things like that. Yeah. So there are, there are some, in, in most cases, there aren't sort of single genes that are known that have huge effects. So the way that genes actually work, contrary to kind of the daily news reporting on genes, is that instead of single genes having large effects, that happens, but it's rare. It's usually large networks of genes working in combination to produce effects. So, for example, in the most famous exercise genetic study of all time is called the Heritage Family Study. I write about it extensively um, in the book, and these researchers took fam- multi-generational families, put them on identical endurance training, tightly controlled in a lab for high effort, and found that a large proportion of how much any individual improved their, their ability to use oxygen when exposed to training was dictated by which family they were in. And in 2011, those researchers found a 21-gene predictor set. So people who had at least 19 of the so-called good versions of these genes improved the amount of oxygen they could carry three times as much as people who had fewer than 10, even though everyone had done the identical training. So this is, this is what's coming out of exercise genetics. Just like medical genetics showed us that no two people respond to a Tylenol the same way because of differences in genes and metabolize acetaminophen, same thing showing up for training. No two people respond to the medicine of training the same way because of differences in their genes. So this talent of trainability is what's really coming out of in endurance genetics. Well, and so how, I mean, how can you really use that information, though, as, I guess, a couple of scenarios. Like, one, if you're a parent, you know, and you, you think you want your kids to do sports or something, uh, and then I guess if you're, an, a, a, you know, a teenager or an adult and you want to figure out what might make the most sense for you. I think it depends. I mean, one, I think it's important to recognize a couple things philosophically. First of all, that, in, so in that, in the heritage study, for example, the the correlation between someone's talent level, you know, measured by their, their aerobic endurance at baseline, had a zero correlation with their ability to improve from training. So when the scientists looked on the first day of training and said these 10 people are the most talented, they, they would miss 100% of the people who end the study looking the most talented. So I think it's important to realize that we, we recognize talent on day one. That's what we always do. And in some skills, there's no blanket answer, actually. Some skills, some sports skills, there is a correlation between initial ability and ability to, to improve, and others, there's no correlation. So I think really recognizing that you don't know what someone's talent is until you've kind of manipulated their environment to find the training that's ideal for them. And some of this is now done for elite athletes based on their physiology. But But I don't think... You know, if we examine physiology and try to tailor training pre-puberty, you don't really know what someone's physiology is anyway. So I think rather than doing any testing, it's just important to keep in mind that you don't really know what a kid is good at until they have a chance to, to sample. So scientists are now calling this a sampling period, which is what, at least through age 13, most elite athletes actually practice less than people who plateau at lower levels. And they go through this sampling period where they're finding what they're actually trainable at. So you mentioned that there are some where there's a correlation between baseline and, and the outcome. And which, like, could you give me a couple examples? Yeah. So, like a really a really simple to understand example um, in high speed ball skills, um, 
there are studies that look at people with certain visual skills, like depth perception. This is just a really simple example. But in studies where people are randomly picked, they don't know that they're being picked because of their depth perception, and then they're trained in, in high-speed ball skills, you know, catching, intercepting balls, things like that. The people who have just... Nobody's been trained in the skill before. Some better... Uh, basically physical hardware for depth perception will start out better when the ball is going fast and they will also improve much more rapidly. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, so, and, you know, there's an example that, that I've got from you too, which about uh, with baseball players, how you, you really can't see the ball coming at you, right? A 90 mile per hour fastball. So it's, there's a reaction speed there that, that comes in that's almost subconscious. Is that something that, that's right. Is there any baseline to that? I mean, there, or, well, is there, or is that something that could be completely trained? That one's interesting. So it's it's what you're referring to is that actually what major league baseball players do is should be impossible for our mm-hmm. our biology. Like you know the, the advice that people get to keep their eye on the ball is total nonsense. You you can't your eyes can't track an object that's angular position is changing that rapidly as it gets close to your face. And the minimum human reaction time just to see that a ball's in flight for that information to cross the synapses to the back of your brain you and for you to initiate muscular action. Is 200 milliseconds, that's a fifth of a second. That's half the total flight time of a major league pitch just to initiate muscular action. So it's far too slow, but the way that hitters can do this is because they've learned through practice to interpret the body movements of a pitcher, like the shifts of the torso, rotation of the shoulder, the flicker of a pitch, which is the flashing pattern the seams make when the ball rotates. To, to They group that into what's called a chunk, and it's like a signal that right when the ball's out of the pitcher's hand, They've already decided if they're swinging or not and where the ball's going. And so they really don't have to rely on their reflexes. And that's an interesting skill because nobody, nobody does it at baseline. So everyone is incapable of doing it at baseline and only learns how to do it when, as they learn how to interpret those body movements. And there's certainly different learning rates for sure, and some of those are based on visual skills. But everyone is zero. Everyone's worthless at baseline. So there's, there's nothing really to correlate to at baseline because absolutely nobody can do it. And even if you look at major league hitters, they are as useless as little leaguers at hitting softball pitchers because they haven't learned how to interpret those body movements. Yeah, and that's really, that's really funny. I, I, and I know that that applies in tennis as well with tennis serving. You know, a lot of times they'll say that, like, if, if the person bounces the ball twice, then they're going to go for the left corner. You know, like, they just sort of learn those things about, about the thing. It also reminds me, there, there's this great Discovery Channel show uh, called, uh, I think it was called Ultimate Warrior or something, but they looked at uh, a Israeli defense fighter guy who who knew Krav Maga and the the test they were showing was how someone pulled a gun on him and then he basically reacted grabbed the gun and punched the guy and his reaction of grabbing the gun and and delivering the punch was faster than the brain synapse of the guy basically could react and pull the trigger which yeah. is, you know it's like a, yeah. a quarter of a second or something so um it, it, yeah I guess that completely has to be trained uh, so you, you mentioned something else there that that then leads to another point that I really want to talk to you about which is you said about kids having to basically sampling different sports and stuff before they're till they're about thirteen. So th- mm-hmm. that that gets me to the ten thousand hour rule, which mm-hmm. you pretty much debunk. And I always thought that that seemed like such a weird thing. So can you talk about that a little bit? First of all, you know what it was based on, and then how that really doesn't apply in this case. Yeah, well, the ten thousand hour rule is this idea, um, largely popularized by a couple of best selling books that that there is no such thing as talent and that really it's 10,000 hours of, of effortful practice um, is necessary and sufficient to make anyone an expert in anything, you know, whatever, chess, 
baseball, whatever. And it comes, well, the, the first problem with that is it comes from a study by a, led by a Florida State psychologist named Anders Ericsson. And his original study, what he did was he took 30 violinists, um, reconstructed their practice careers, and, and saw that the 10 best who would go on to become international soloists had practiced a lot more than the others in, in sort of solitary practice and had accumulated an average of 10,000 hours of practice by age 20. But for starters, that was, uh, I mean, it was a violin study. It was never meant to be extrapolated to the rest of the world. But it was 30 violinists who had all, were already so highly pre-screened that they'd gained admission to a world-famous music academy. So this would be like doing a study of what causes basketball skill, limiting your sample to NBA centers, noticing right. they'd all practiced a lot, and therefore saying that only practice got them where they are, not practice plus being seven feet tall, right? So there's a hopeless restriction of range. And then most of the people did not reach 10,000 hours in the 10,000 hours group. The average was weighted by two people who went way over 10,000 hours. So there was actually huge individual variation, and that shows up in every study of skill acquisition. So like in chess, it's actually 11,053 hours on average to reach international master status, but some people make it in 3,000 hours, and some people are still being tracked at 25,000 hours, and they still haven't made it. So you can average it and say, well, I've got an 11,053 hour rule, but it doesn't really tell you anything about reality. And, and what exercise genetics is showing is that it's each person's ability to profit differently from the type of training is really the difference. So no one person's hour is the, is the same as as the next person's hour. And, you know, the 10,000-hour rule, it was never a rule in the first place. It was never, I mean, it, it was never a rule even for violin. That Anders Ericsson actually has now, he's been so dismayed by the popular portrayal of it that he has linked on his faculty webpage at Florida State a letter titled, The Danger of Delegating Education to Journalists, which I think <laughs> sums up his feeling pretty well. Well, okay, so, yeah, and the thing is that, so, bizarre about it. I mean, so uh, Malcolm Gladwell obviously is the, the really who popularized this. And, and when I read it in his book, it was like, wow, that's really, it's pretty cool and kind of weird and amazing in some ways. But it's also the examples that he gave, one of them was Bill Gates having worked in a computer lab, like sneaking out at night and working in a computer lab. Um, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it just never made sense to me. Like why 10,000 hours and the, the idea that basically that there is no innate ability then we're that that basically just means that we're all homogenous essentially it's just whatever you apply yourself to and by that same token i feel like that that saying that if you don't apply yourself that way like well it's just you're not going to become an expert then in that yeah, I mean, in that way yeah i mean it's it's if 10,000 hour rule is code word for hard work matters then i'm all for it but that's been completely uncontroversial among scientists who study skill acquisition for a long long time so that isn't kind of adding anything new to the body of work. And the problem is the more we're figuring out how people differ, the more we're figuring out how important it is to get someone, you know, no two people have the same genotype. I love this quote from J.M. Tanner, who was a world-class hurdler, happened to be, but he was also the world's expert in body growth and development. And it was something like no two people uh, have a similar genome. Therefore, for optimal development, no two people should have the same environment. And so really what we're figuring out is that we have to find the environment that's optimal for each person's individual physiology and psychology. And something like the 10,000-hour rule, which seems to suggest that there's sort of these cookie-cutter approaches, is the opposite of everything that's coming out of science. Not only that, but it's, it's really having a damaging effect on skill acquisition for youth sports where kids are being sort of pushed into professionalized training. And what you actually want is them to do what scientists call learn like a baby at that stage, not have explicit professionalized training and just be immersed 
in sort of physical skills, they can gain a variety of physical skills. So what's happened, there's a researcher in Canada named Jean Cote. I use a little bit of his data uh, in an afterward I added to the book. And he's, he's noticed that in big cities now, this push toward early specialization has led to coaches with lots of technical expertise coaching kids when they're much younger in cities that have those kinds of resources. And consequently, those cities now don't produce any professional athletes. So th- these, there's a huge overrepresentation now of athletes coming from towns of 50,000 to 100,000 where they don't have access to this kind of professionalized coaching until they're older. Interesting. That's that's really interesting. In um, every sport. Yeah, and, and so again, it, I, it's like, first of all, t- one of the reasons that I found that interesting in the beginning was because part of what I I focus on and what I'm passionate about with less doing is about sort of find, not not necessarily finding shortcuts, but you know, hacking things and finding sort of the most optimal path to things. And at first, this sounds like that. It's like, oh, you just do this for ten thousand hours, but the ten thousand hours is a lot of time. That's not really a shortcut. In some ways, especially as you said, some people can do this mastery in three thousand hours or less or or more, and to blindly follow that in a path that you really may not 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 only not end up being good at, but that you really might not like, it does seem really deleterious. Yeah, and I mean, in it, it won't work in sports anyway because it turns out that athletes get to the elite level way before ten thousand hours of deliberate practice. So they actually do is at least through 12 or 13, they have this period where they do a lot of implicit learning where they're not told explicitly what to do because they want to learn the way that they learn language just by learning it unconsciously, not having to like think through steps. And then after that, they sort of start to focus in on more technical skills, but they make, uh, it, it, it varies between the sport, but for a pro sport, usually about 6,000 hours would be a high average to make the elite level for certain sports. Some sports are closer to 4,000 hours. So you know that that number is just—it's just, it's just uh, misleading. Well, and then one more thing about that too is I feel like there, there's got to be some some sense of like a law of diminishing returns to some extent. And what I, what I'm thinking about specifically actually is like golf. So I I, yeah. I I started playing golf after college actually, and I fairly quickly became like a seven handicap, which is really good. Um, mm-hmm. and, and now I'm I'm not anywhere near that because I haven't played as much, but. What you find is that, like, getting from, you know, a 20 handicap to a 14 handicap, you know, you can do that in, in a month or two if you're really, really focused on it. Getting to a 14 to a 7 could take a lot, lot longer. And then once I was at 7, I was at a 7 handicap for probably two years and never improved beyond that, as deliberate as I thought I wanted to be. Because if you think about it in golf, you're basically talking about taking a fraction of a stroke off of every hole. It just... it. It, it, I mean, it doesn't matter how much. It just gets harder and harder. Yeah, I mean, that, that's interesting you mentioned that because there's a guy in the, in, uh, early on in my book named Dan McLaughlin who quit his job as a commercial photographer when he read about the 10,000-hour rule and decided to do 10,000 hours of golf practice and become a pro because that's what the rule says. And I, I stay in touch with him, and he's, he, yeah, I really like him, and he's really enjoying the journey. And same time he emailed me the other day, and, he, you know, he, he came down. His progress was just very, very rapid at first. And, uh, you know, he's in his 30s, and he emailed me the other day and said, yeah, you know, I feel like I've kind of stagnated the last year after this really, really rapid progress. So I think he's now um, entering that. He, he's, I think maybe he's like five or 6,000 hours in. Um, his projected finish is sometime 2017, I think, and he's, uh, he's, uh, sounds like he's feeling the, the diminishing returns now. Yeah, and then the other question, finally, about that, too, is that this just keeps coming to me, actually, is, like, is what happens after the 10,000 hours? It's like, are you just home free then, and there's no room for improvement, or you've, I mean, what? Yeah, I mean, there's no, it's, 
it, it depends. Like if it's if it, if you're trying to be an international chess master, then it's. I pointed out that that's an eleven thousand fifty three hour rule, and when Gladwell sort of wrote about it, he said, "Oh, but you didn't pick people who were good enough." And I said, "But they're way past your ten thousand hours. So how can you say?" They're not good enough because they're not grandmasters yet because they're way past 10,000 hours, right? Some of those people are 25,000 hours and haven't made it, so what do you tell them? I mean, it's just, a, it's, just, it's just an incredible simplification that takes away so much of what's useful in a century's worth of science and skill acquisition. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just could ramble on about this actually for a little bit. So, but, um, okay, so, so that's... that's really eye-opening and fascinating and on the one hand it's I mean it's good to know that that's not something that you have to strive for because again as I said like it takes away that that almost disappointment like if you just don't put in it's basically telling people like you're not working hard enough if you don't do it so uh, I'm I'm very happy that to have that debunked yeah. um, Australia you know that's been has a centralized sports science institute and when they realized how you know that you can actually like switch adults between sports and find something that works better for them they institutionalized that in the lead up to when they were hosting the olympics and ended up with gold medalists who had not even played their sport the previous olympics they ended up winning 10 times as many medals per capita as the united states because they they started just focusing on what sport would be the best fit for people and it's that's one of the reasons why they punch way above their weight in in international sports well, and, you know, another thought on that, too, is that if you take an opposite approach where you're really just trying to be innovative, you know, it, whether that's entrepreneurial or in some other way where you're creating something new, then technically, you know, you could be an expert after 10 hours if there's nobody else who knows how to do it. Then you are right. an expert, right? Sure, yeah, yeah so, that's, a, that's a good point. A lot of it has to do, right, with the depth of the competitive field, for sure. Right, absolutely. And because you mentioned chess with that, and, you know, if you're, if you're playing against, uh, you know, if you're... If you're 17 years old and you're playing against a bunch of four-year-olds, then it doesn't take much time for you to become an expert if you all start playing chess at the same time. That's so, for sure. All right. Well, so my, my last question that I always like to ask on the podcast and these interviews is what are your – and this can be from anything that you know or have learned or researched or, or study, but what are your top three tips for people to be more effective? And in my world, that usually means getting more done, but it really can – whatever you think can make someone more effective. I think, first of all, that everyone, we too often skip, o- skip over what sports scientists have come to call that sampling period, where we, when we jump into something we want to learn, we focus really specifically on it. But the, the science, from not only from sports, but also from music, shows that elite performers, early on, they first kind of play around a little bit. They have a play phase where they figure out first what they like, because they're going to have to devote a lot of time to it, and they also gain sort of a broad range of baseline skills before they really focus in. And so they have to, you know, they might see their peers getting a head start. Like Steve Nash, the two-time NBA MVP, didn't own a basketball until he was 13. So when he first started, a lot of peers were way out in front of him, but he had gained this wide variety of physical skills that allowed him to, to get farther ultimately. And the same thing sort of happens with musicians. They, they sample, the elite musicians, they sample a number of different instruments before they focus in. So I think having a, allowing yourself that sampling period, even if it means someone else gets a head start, because you will catch them, that's the pattern. And one of the character traits that shows uh, the greatest um, correlation, so in the Netherlands, where they track kids in a range of sports from age 12 all the way up to the pros. And there are certain physical traits, you know, that, that the, the kids who go to the pros have, but there's also behavioral traits. So when I watch the video of these kids at age 12, the ones who go on to the pros are the ones who are going up to the coach going like, 
well, why are we doing this drill again? What is this helping me work on? Like, I think I already mastered this. Can I do this other thing that's harder? And the coach will be like, oh, God, just calm down. But it turns out that this is what those sports scientists call self-regulatory behavior. Those kids are taking responsibility for their own practice quality. They're becoming the orchestrators of their own development, which you have to do eventually. And when they assess their weaknesses, they do it much more similarly to how objective coach observers do it than the kids who don't exhibit that behavior and they sort of are clueless about their weaknesses and so they aren't able to formulate plans to fix them so i think we should all take that 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 cycle of kind of assessment plan for improvement and then evaluate that planned work and then see how your weakness is and keep going through that cycle that's what they do and they continually improve while others stagnate and lastly just to remember that tanner quote that even if you have an identical twin there are differences between you and them in, in the genes, you know, smaller than, than for most siblings, but there are differences. And so if a training plan in whatever skill you're trying to acquire isn't working for you the way it's working for your peer or partner or colleague, the problem might be you in the very deep sense of the word that this isn't the optimal environment for your unique set of skills. And so really take a trial and error approach to yourself. You're a study of N equals one. And the goal is trying to find the optimal environment for your development, and it's not the same environment exactly as anyone else's. Uh, that's great. That's really, really great advice, and thank you for sharing that. So, uh, David, where, where, I'm going to put links in the show notes to the book and everything, but where, where's the best place for people to find out more about you? Uh, Thesportsgene.com. Uh, I have some info and, and contacts and things on that site. Okay. Well, we'll have that there. So, David, thank you so much. It's really been great talking to you, and uh, appreciate your time. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Felix here. Thanks for taking the time to listen in and we hope you're enjoying the podcast. We always like to hear your feedback. Please make sure to check out the blog at lessdoing.com where you can find out about Ari's elite group coaching mastermind group as well as the Less Doing University which has over 100 hours of video content and a question and answer forum too. Also, if you love the show, please take a moment to leave us a positive review on iTunes. Thanks a lot and we'll see you next week.